Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Sarah Bodine, Head of Customer Advocacy and Early Stage Marketing at Zadida. As an early stage marketer at Zadida, Sarah is tackling the problem of creating awareness and adoption in a burgeoning industry. In this interview, Sarah discusses her approach to solving those problems, as well as the present and future use cases and challenges of IoT deployment at the edge. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Packet, an Equinix company. Packet is the leader in bare metal automation. They are on a mission to protect, connect, and power the digital world with developer-friendly physical infrastructure and a neutral, interconnected ecosystem that spans over 55 global markets. Learn more at packet.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Sarah Bodine, Head of Customer Advocacy and Early Stage Marketing at Zadida, and your host, Matt Shafiro. Hi, this is Matt Shafiro, the CMO of Edge Infrastructure Company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. And today I'm here with Sarah Bodine, a community advocate and early stage marketer with Zadida. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm great, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing terrific. And, you know, so before we talk about edge computing in general, I wanted to ask you your origin story. So how did, how did you get involved with technology at all? So it's a funny story because this is not how I intended to live. Like if you'd asked me when I was 16 what my career path would be, it would not be... What would it have been? Well, at that point, I would have been a veterinarian. Okay. But then I ended up in college. I ended up with a job working for the central IT department. At the college? At the, yeah, at the university that I went to. And so I, I worked for them the entire time I was in school. And that then was the genesis of that when I graduated... I found myself that I was offered a role as a Unix sysadmin. Okay. And it was a pretty awesome opportunity to come in and be part of central IT. It was a great learning experience. I was working on a project that actually... And it was Unix, not Linux? It was Unix. It was actually FreeBSD, Solaris. FreeBSD, I was going to ask you which, which yep, variant. Yep. <laughs> I did have a couple SUSE boxes, but only, only a handful. So it was the vast majority was FreeBSD and almost everything we did was open source. That's pretty early days for open source. It wasn't as, I think, codified as it is today, but it definitely was a really great learning to me of the value of the open source community. And, you know, if you're trying to solve problems, having that group of people that are all invested in it, that it it's sort of really set that value to me early on. Could you tell us a little of that story? Like what was, like, pick a project that you thought is exemplary and, and how the community changed what might have happened? Let me tell you first what we what we did. So and why why it was open source. So the university was basically tasked by the governor. So I was at Michigan State University, and we were tasked by the governor for various reasons to help a lot of the rural K through twelve schools to get online. So this is pre cloud. We won't talk about the dates pre cloud. And so these are schools that didn't have a lot of funding. Maybe had somebody doing IT part time. Might not have anyone doing IT for them. And the university needed to help them with getting network access, you know, doing things like setting up DNS, DHCP, helping them with a website, getting email for teachers, a lot of those basic things. That was very difficult back then, as opposed to five clicks now. It was bad. It was. Well, you know, you think about it today, and I was thinking about this last night, that today it would just be like you'd go out and buy a half a dozen SaaS providers and, you know, you'd 
everything would all be in a nice GUI. And it's a different world. I mean, in the early nineties, I registered a bunch of four letter domain names that I never monetized because I just let them expire. <laughs> but it, you could do that, right? Yeah, you could. And so, and so that was the thing was with this is that these schools, there was very little money. So we went with open source because the university needed to use whatever funds they had for this project to actually make the schools be successful. So FreeBSD was a really great one because they had a very active community at the time. They, in terms of, you know, uptime, security, things of that sort, we would put it on those boxes and those boxes would never go down, right? So FreeBSD was a really great one for us to use as the base for that. And then we'd layer on top of that, you know, all the different services that they needed, Apache and SendMail and NameD for DNS and all of that. But, and this is to me where the, it sort of relates back to edge computing and kind of where we're at today is that, so again, we're working with people in the schools that maybe they're part-time IT, maybe they were the chemistry teacher who really also was into computers. And so they were asked to take on this project. One of the main contacts at the school I worked with was the librarian. And she said, basically, if they plugged in, if something plugged in, they gave it to her because they didn't know what else to do with it. So it was people that were had jobs already at the schools, had expertise, had things they were responsible for doing that now had this extra technology burden that they had to figure out as well. So the university then provided them the systems that had all the software they needed. But then we also built a GUI on top of it so that if you're the librarian in a school who now has to manage, you know, your email server, you don't have to actually go in and edit, you know, files and send mail. You could just go in and fill out the form and, you know, that would happen. So that was kind of where it started for me in terms of the role that technology could play to not just get these schools more modernized, which was super important, and it's an entirely different world today, but to help the people that are charged with that, who that's not their life's dream of doing it. They have other jobs. This is something they were asked to, we're all asked to take on additional things in our, in our you know, day-to-day duties, right? Something additional that they were tasked with taking on. And our role as part of IT coming in to help them, even though we were coming in from a university, but now IT coming in is how can we make this as straightforward for them so that they can fulfill all their business obligations in a way that's secure and scalable and all of the things that are important to us today on the edge. So to me, it was really sort of an early glimpse of that prior to cloud computing. And we actually had to roll out servers to each of these, you know, each of these schools and plug them in and all of that. But it was kind of a cool way to, to see that in process to get sort of my feet wet with the open source community, but doing it from the perspective of, we relied on them and we chose them initially because we had no funding and we needed the community support because the university couldn't put all of the resources toward just helping these schools, right? We had other responsibilities as well. But so that was where it started. And then I sort of worked my way that, as you can imagine, it was a project that came to the university from the governor. There was lots of politics involved. That got me doing more on the communication side of technology. You know, fast forward a certain number of years and now I'm on the the sort of marketing communication side of things. Yeah, and so it sounds like a pretty meaningful career pivot to move from technology. And and I did something similar. I bounced around, you know, when I realized other people were better programmers than I was, <laughs> even though I liked programming, I said I got to find another way to stay in technology but but add more value. But what was what was it for you? I think for me in terms of you mean the in terms of the pivot from doing the more tech stuff to the more communication stuff? Sure, yeah. So for me, I started getting this to me is the sweet spot between technology and sort of communications and marketing is where you get to be that bridge between 
the sort of the deep IT stuff and what we're doing and how things work, but you're the bridge to explaining it to maybe somebody that's coming at it from a different perspective. Their objections are perhaps a little bit different and, and you're helping to create that understanding. So I ended up when I was still at the university, I ended up leading communications for the CIO. And so he sent me out to speak to anybody that was basically coming to the university that wanted to understand about anything technology-wise, high-performance computing center, what we were doing for distance learning, you know, satellite campuses in other countries, anything that was related to technology, I was sort of the bridge between the IT part of the university and then what we were going to put out externally. And I really love that spot. I think that's a, it's very interesting to try to figure out how do we make it accessible for people to understand what we're doing and making it accessible in a way that then helps them further whatever their business goals are. That's amazing. Yeah, I, you know, I'm grinning because that's exactly how I see a big part of my job. And it is a lot of fun. You know, I, I, I sometimes say like my, my job is to ask naive questions because if I can't understand it through the answer to naive questions, I'm never going to be able to explain it to a reporter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I think that bridge is really important, and uh, and and I understand why you why you enjoy it because you get to stay attached to the technology, you get to challenge yourself in that way, but you also have this whole other challenge, which is like how do you break it down into understandable parts so that other people can gain competency? That's a really neat. That's really neural. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I always tell people I was never the best sysadmin. Certainly, no one today would hire me as a sysadmin, right? It's <laughs> right, a different time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've administered a database, but I'm not a data DBA. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's not the. <laughs> those aren't the links. Yeah, I can. I, I can maybe sequel my way out of a paper bag, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you also describe yourself as an early stage marketer. Like, how do you see? So, what does that mean to you? And how is that different from you know, I guess, a later stage marketer? So I think we're at a point right now, and I think this is true of startups, but I also think it's true of the industry in terms of edge and where we are today, where there's a lot of unknowns, right? There's no, there's no prescription to here's how you need to be successful at the edge, right? Where we have a lot of POCs that are running in terms of what companies are doing, lots of things in labs, things of that but sort. But it's super amorphous. It is. It is. And everybody's trying to, you know, has all these very specific use cases and, and we don't have kind of you know, a prescription yet of how it needs to work for people. But what we do know is that there's certain principles, things like building it on an open architecture. So you've got the flexibility to be able to work with whatever hardware you need to work with and whatever applications and whatever cloud. You know, there's certain things we understand, but I think in the industry as a whole, people are struggling with how do I get this super cool thing that I'm doing in the lab that I know has business value actually into a real functioning deployment that I can realize that business value. And I think when it comes to early stage marketing, it's a, what we're doing is it's a lot of education and it's education across the board in terms of what is possible. It's sharing examples. It's sharing what customers are doing successful. It's sharing what people are trying to do. I think it's a lot of it is being a conduit so people can understand what else is out there. You know, when I talk to the analyst community, they don't have answers yet. They have a lot of really great ideas. I feel like we know a lot more than the analysts actually do. They're still they're still climbing the curve. Yeah. No, I think I think so. I think we're at that point. To me, that's so exciting because if you're, you know, my whole background has been in infrastructure from, you know, in addition to all the cool public school stuff I was doing when I was back at the university, I also ran backup servers at the university. And that is not exciting in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Did they have right? tapes? But, was but, it tapes? Um, <laughs> no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Again, we don't want to, we don't want to date me, but yes, the, the age we won't. No, no, people still use tapes. <laughs> we had, we had a gentleman who had his, because they, again, 
very low funding in terms of the schools and stuff. His DR plan was the trunk of his car. And so every day the tapes were rotated out and some tapes were left at the school. Some tapes were at his home and some tapes were in the trunk of his car. So it was a different time. The cloud is definitely the first connected car. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. But so we're at this, we're at this time, right? Where we have to educate people. We have to share people with what it is that we know. The analysts have ideas, but they don't have a clear, concise, you know, sort of path forward at this point, they're still trying to figure it out. And it's very different. This is where I was going with my back of analogy. It's very different when you look at other parts of, you know, data center infrastructure or cloud infrastructure at this point, that there's recommendations out there. There's best practices. If you need to do X, here are the best practices you should follow to get you there. Right. And so the people now that are trying to do do edge and, and COVID, I think, is going to accelerate this as people are looking at, you know, all sorts of new use cases to reduce the amount of, of employees that have to be in an area and things of that sort is they don't have that blueprint, right, to help them. And so for, for us, from an early stage marketing perspective, it's not prescriptive. It's very much helping you understand what's possible here's the things you need to think about. Here's the things you need to think about that are going to help you, not just today because you're thinking about it for one particular use case because we're so early, but here's the things that you need to think about that can help you you know, make sure that whatever you're putting in place today is going to expand to what you need in two years. right? So I think from an early stage perspective, it's very much focused on education across the board and just frankly sharing the information that we have you sharing what you guys are seeing as a, across your customer base us at Zadita sharing what we're seeing sharing it with the analyst community sharing it with with the other customers and and really using that to help build these standards and guidelines and to get to the point where there's a very clear path for people yeah you know you know what's interesting is when i read the description of your of your role on linkedin when I read early stage marketer, I thought early stage company, seed stage, series A stage. And while that probably also applies to Zadita as a startup company, what you're really saying is something much larger, which is early stage industry, mm-hmm. like this blank slate. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm very attracted to that as well. And then from a, from a tactical marketing standpoint, I'm guessing that it parallels you know, my strategy, but tell me if, if your thoughts on this are different, where you know, if you think about let's just say the three pillars of marketing, right? There's like content and education, demand gen and brand, right? I do almost zero demand gen. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because like people don't even have to search for the stuff they're looking for, (laughs) let alone, you know, let alone do it. Is that sort of your same strategy that, that, you you know, eventually it'll shift to that way when people know what they're going to buy, but today it's, we're not even at that point. Is that how you think about it? I do. I do. That, that actually mirrors kind of what we're seeing as well in terms of the focus is on, a lot of it's content, thought leadership, putting the learnings out there. Brand comes along with that, of course, right? Yeah, you attach your brand to the thought leadership and it's going to accrue to that, yeah. Exactly. But there is, I think there is a tremendous opportunity right now for those of us that are in this space to get thought leadership content out there to really help shape and guide. And I think this is some of the great stuff that's coming out of LFEDGE and the project that you're part of as well in terms of really guiding that industry conversation. I think there's a big space for that right now. And in two years, it's going to be different, right? Two years, we're going to be focused more on demand gen and some of the more traditional sort of marketing mechanisms. But I don't, I just don't think we're there today. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you become a traditional marketer or do you find another another new blank slate? Well, hopefully I retire. But <laughs> I think that it's, um, I, for me, the excitement, and I've gone through this before where I went from the early stage to same company to growing it through the different paths to being an established company. And for me personally, what I enjoy is 
the early stuff. Yeah, I do too. That's just the rush. It's it's such a rush. Yeah. It drives some people crazy because like they don't know what to sink their fingernails into. But yeah, I think I think that's true. But I like there's so much excitement around it. There's so much to talk about that's interesting. And it's when there isn't, you know, when I talk to the analysts and they're asking me more questions than I'm asking them. That's really exciting to me. That's fun. Those are, and those are right, like really engaging conversations. So yeah. I like this. This is a good time, I think, in terms of for for me personally and what I enjoy doing. Now, for the startups in our audience that are maybe just looking at entering the edge space and they've been doing a little research, like what would you suggest they put their emphasis on from a marketing perspective? Like what would be the first two or three things that you would do if you joined a company that was just trying to enter the edge space today? I think one, I would look at partners and ecosystem because I think one thing that we're seeing across the board at the edge is that no single company is going to just own this space, right? That this is an ecosystem of players that are going to work together to build solutions. Yeah, and it's a pretty complicated value chain too. It is. It's it's very yeah. complicated, which gets back to the whole open foundation idea, right? That that's part of why the very the, at its base it needs to be able to accommodate whatever whatever partners you need to bring in. So I think the ecosystem is very, very important. I think my personal recommendation to somebody that would be looking at, you know, a rural early stage company is look at the analyst activity, because I think right now we're in a pretty unique spot in terms of the amount of analyst influence that we have as vendors, just because it is so early, because we have, we in the companies are that direct line to the customers. Right. And so we can help facilitate putting our customers with the analysts, but we also can share the use cases. We can share the experiences. And you know from experience, and I know from experience that once an industry is more sort of codified, that changes. Right. So I think right now there's a really good opportunity in terms of influencing the influencers and really helping them understand what the reality is. So I'll use for an example whenever I read anything about why edge computing, latency always comes up as the number one reason that people think, you know, we need edge computing. And that's great. And we are going to absolutely get there where latency is going to be the number one issue. But the thing we, t- we say constantly is latency is not the number one issue for any of our customers. They're doing it because of bandwidth, right? They're doing it because they have too much data to send all of it to the cloud. It's too expensive. It takes too long. They need to deal, deal with that data at the edge. And that to me is a, that's a really... That's just a gap. Yeah, throughput is a really big component to edge computing. Yeah, yeah. And and so, but I think that until you start talking to the customers that are actually dealing with it and realizing, oh, wait a second, we're a little too early perhaps for latency to be the, the huge issue. It's going, I think it's going to be. Today, it's more like nuts and bolts type thing, right? The pipe just isn't big enough. I'm, I'm going to read between the lines and, and suggest another piece of advice that I think you're suggesting, which is if you're a startup company getting at edge, talk to a bunch of customers. Because that may change your thesis. Yeah, no, that's that's totally true. Because you learn the more you talk to those customers, the more you learn, right? And some of these companies have been doing this for a long time. They're just doing it in a very, you know, in what's a long time? Well, I mean, we've got industrials out there that have been doing IoT for decades now, right? With SCADA systems that are out there and whatnot, yeah, and are just trying to figure out how to modernize and how to how to run some of those old applications alongside newer applications and get more value out of it. So I think there's a lot of knowledge that's out there. Yeah, that's a good point. And I Mm -hmm. think the other thing I would say, and this has been probably one of the biggest learnings from me, I've been with Zadita almost two years now, right? And and so this is kind of my my foray into Edge started about two years ago. And I have a very IT-centric background, right? So so we talked about that. And, And my foray with the school program was my first time 
really working with people that were tasked with maybe getting IT results that weren't IT. And I think what we need to remember as vendors as well is that we might approach this just because of our pedigrees as a very IT-focused conversation, but there are OT people out in these customers that are experts that have been dealing with this stuff for a long time. And they're the ones that are going to be up in the wind turbines and they're going to be the ones going to the oil wellheads. And we have a lot that we can learn from them and how they're doing their jobs as well. So I'd say not just, don't just come at it from an IT perspective. There's this whole other category of people out there that have so much that we can learn from as well. Yeah. You know, um, Joe Zhu, the CEO of Zenlayer, described the edge in a really interesting way, which is it's where the digital world meets the physical world. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that really does describe the difference between IT and OT in some ways, right? It's like, yeah, there's an actual wind t- turbine with moving parts, Yep. you know, not this like abstract cloud that I provision these magic instances. And, you know, even in data centers, there's moving parts, but no developer actually sees them anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You don't have to climb to the top of the wind turbine, right? Yeah. Like that's the, and, and I, I like the wind turbine example as well, because when we talk about what Zedita does in edge orchestration and the ability to run applications alongside each other on the same piece of hardware, you know, in the old days, it might be that I have a piece of hardware running one application or it's for one use case. And then I put another piece of hardware next to it for another use case or attached to a different set of sensors running a different application. And I'm managing all these in silos. But if you think about a wind turbine, at the top of that wind turbine, there's only so much room for me to put to actually put hardware, right? So there's a real physical limitation in terms of how much space I have. So I have to be smart about how I'm deploying my applications, attaching my sensors, all of those things, because I only have so much space. And then by the same token, it's hard for me to get to these places as well. So, you know, how long, you know, how far do I have to drive to get to this particular wind turbine? I have to have a truck that can take me up in a bucket, and then I have to climb to the top from at that point once I'm on the ladder, and I have to climb down into the wind turbine. There's, I mean, it's not, it's not just IT for the faint of heart, right? So we have to think about it in terms of, it's different. It's not, it's not just the data center, but outside at the edge of your... So, so how, how does Zadita help the person that's climbing the wind, the wind turbine? So <laughs> we don't help them with the climbing. They have to, they have to work on their own... They have to climb on their own. <laughs> their own physical fitness. But um, so what Zadita does is we do cloud-based orchestration for the IoT edge. So basically, you have some sort of device out there, could be a gateway device, could be Intel, could be ARM, some sort of small device that's out there that is going to be attached to your sensors. How small is small? We can go down to a Raspberry Pi. Okay. At what point is it no longer small, do you think? Is a, I don't know, an iPad small? I mean, it's (laughs) got to be able to run a hypervisor. It has to be, uh, it's got to be able to have a container, right? So there's certain, there's certain requirements there in terms of, of that. I think you could probably experiment it with it and get get pretty down there. But I think for customers, right, you want some sort of industrial class machine because it needs to have some sort of future for them, right? It's not just for the one, ideally, it's not just for the one use case that they're putting out there. Okay. So we're based on top of EVE, the open source project from LF Edge. For those people who don't know, can you describe what functionality EVE, EVE provides? Yep. So EVE is a um, basically an edge computing engine that gives you the ability with, with high degrees of security to run VMs, containers, clusters, unikernels, all alongside of each other on these devices. Okay. And is, and is EVE a project that was contributed primarily by Zadita? 
Yeah. So we, um, I'm glad you said that. We, we at Zadina contributed Eve, I think almost a year and a half ago to LF Edge at the point that LF Edge was launched. So we are very much a company that believes that the edge has to be open. I mean, I've said that a half dozen times in this conversation and we've uh, just within our execs, we've got members of the Linux foundation. We've got board members for Apache. We believe very strongly in, in the power of open source and the fact that the edge, because it is so diverse in use cases and applications and hardware and all of those things that it has to have an open foundation. Right. So, so Eve really is intended to be the Android of the edge. That's really kind of the model that we're going for. So we, so we as Adita donated. Is it an operating system? It kind of is. It, it is. I mean, you could, you could okay. essentially say that it's, it's a hypervisor that sits, that sits and helps you separate. You hand it a workload and it can run it. In yeah, exactly. Exactly. And okay. in, in whatever the VM or container or whatever you need from that perspective. So Eve gives you the ability to run all your different workloads completely separate from each other on your device. Zadita then leverages Eve's open APIs, and we have an orchestration solution that we've built on top of that that's, that's hosted in the cloud. And what that does is it gives customers the ability to completely remotely do all of the management of these devices and their applications. So we're talking about BIOS upgrades on that device. You know, you don't have to go out and actually visit the device to do that. Um, updating of the applications, the maintenance that you need to do, security patches, all of that is done along with that, and it's done remotely. And then what we do is we work with a variety of different hardware manufacturers. Like I said, the concept of an open foundation means you should be able to use any hardware, any application, connect it to any cloud or on-premise system that you need. But we do work with a number of hardware vendors that'll they'll actually sell you boxes that has Eve already installed. Already built in, yeah. So that when the person goes up in the wind turbine, at that point, they need to just plug it in and connect it to the network. And then it calls home, which is the, the Zadita cloud, and the IT person that's sitting, you know, probably at home today, um, can then log into their Zadita interface and do everything they need to do with that box in terms of setting up the distributed firewall or um, just deploying applications, updating operating systems, things of that sort. So it's 100% based remote orchestration. Does that also mean that if I'm a manufacturer and I ship a device with you know, I don't know, some level of compliant Eve on it that the customer could then decide to use Zedita? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. so in basic, in our, and, and we get asked this a lot because if the we donated Eve, the APIs are open, yeah. you could write your own controller. So the only thing you need is a device with Eve running on it in a compliant way and Zedita can help orchestrate it. Yes. Okay, that's yes. terrific. That's terrific. Yep. And then yep. how, how, does, how does Zedita's platform compare to say, I don't know, the Azure IoT tool chain? So you know, that's, a, that's a really great question because Microsoft's actually one of Zadita's big partners. Oh, okay. So well, we, what, what, what Zadita allows you to do is it's not just managing the application, it's managing the device as well. So there's that, that component of it right from the get-go. But we're also helping you get, when you talk about a lot of things like Azure or, or AWS, Greengrass and whatnot, the runtimes are available, right? for you to put down on your device and then connect to, you know, in Azure's case, the IoT hub. But what they don't help you do is actually get that runtime on that device. Hmm. And it's one thing for me to sit down and say, as, as the, the IT person for a company or the OT person, I need to set up my device. I need to put a base operating system on it. Now I'm going to install the Azure runtime, the Azure IoT runtime. I'm going to install the Azure IoT security module. I'm going to go through all of these steps. I've done it on this one device. Yeah. Now I have to do it on 
a thousand devices, right? So it gets, so, so they provide all of these. And you might have to do it in near real time. Exactly. And they provide all these tools, but what they don't, what's left to the customer is that last mile of actually getting Mm. the runtime on the devices and getting it back connected to the cloud. So what we do, and, and Azure is a good example of this, is we have basically a concept of an app catalog, just like you download apps on your phone, right? Where you can choose the Azure app. It allows you to go in. You're able to input information specific to your Azure IoT instance. So it connects to your account. And then you can push that out onto any devices. You can do it in bulk. It downloads the runtime. It sets up the associated edge device within Azure IoT Hub in the cloud makes the connection, and now you're ready to go. But it also does all your ongoing updates and maintenance. You know, the next time there's a, ver- a new version of the runtime, all of that you can do remotely as well. So for the customer, it's remote. Yeah, and as a Zeta, Zeta customer, I think it, it sounds like I get a, a, a couple of pieces of really important value. So one of them is I have an easier way to manage all my devices. The second thing is I have a you know plug and play way to interface with major cloud providers. But it also the third thing is that it gives me it, it helps me avoid vendor lock-in from the cloud providers. Yeah, absolutely. And and what we and from the device manufacturers. Ex- yeah, exactly. Because what what happens is it, and again when we think about the edge and how complicated it can be, it's not, you know, if I need to replace a device for what reason it's not like I just go to the data center and, and deal with it. I might have to get on a truck. I might have to get on a boat. I might have to do something to get to those devices, right? So this gives you more flexibility in terms of the type of devices that you're using. You can use any type of devices that are compatible with, with Eve. You can work with any of the cloud providers. You can, and we have customers that do this, where I might have one application sending data to Azure, another application sending data to an on-premise system, and another application sending it to AWS. Yeah. Right? And then the other thing that we see, what we're seeing from customers that they really like with this model, and I'll use the Azure example again, is it's helping sort of draw a little line between IT and the developers. So the developers are working in Azure IoT Hub and building out the modules and everything they need to do to do the analysis on the data after the fact. But for the person who's who's targeted with taking care of this device, taking care of the runtime on this device, now they're only going to the Zadita interface. They don't have to go to the Azure IoT Hub where the devs work. So it helps within the companies. They can draw a little bit of, of keeping people in the areas they're most comfortable. Yeah, different different user. And yeah, that makes sense. This is going to be kind of an out there question, but it's, I'm super curious. Is there a future where Zadita works with partners that have deployed devices in the field where you are using your capability to stitch together underutilized resources to essentially allow third parties to deploy multi-tenant workloads out in the field? That's a good question. And I don't... It's like a device edge cloud almost. No, no, right? Like it's the, the old... We used to have this old concept at the university about how you had all these computers sitting in computer labs, and when they weren't being in, being used, they could be used for other workloads. Right. Right? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, Bitcoin miners figured that out with with uh, plugins. Yeah, yeah. Plugins. So I I don't know. I, I can't say that. Yes, I think that'll happen. I can I can. Eat, but having seen it, that's something people figure out how to do. I wouldn't surprise me if that was a path we got to at some. Point. Yeah, and I you know I don't yet know what the business model will be, but I can imagine a situation where a city says, "Look, we want to deploy a bunch of edge devices for our own use." And and we want to pay for them by leasing capacity out. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. It really is. But on the other hand, you know, we and we definitely encourage people that when you're selecting hardware and whatnot, think about it from a future perspective. That don't just buy the hardware that can comp- you know is enough to run the application you want to run today or the workload you want to run, but make sure that it also can accommodate the things you want to do in the future. Because what we find is that 
for, and this gets to people having extra capacity, is that once customers start deploying and seeing the value, like they're really realizing the value of the data that they're gathering and the benefits they're getting from it, pretty quickly they start having other ideas of other apps they'd like to run, other types of sensors they'd like to put in to collect additional information. You know, they, they start to see the other ways that they can gain efficiency. So if you're using boxes that are big enough to, you know, that have the extra capacity to be able to do that, it's really easy to just deploy another app in a container or a VM or whatever it takes and, and, and start to realize that value. Yeah. Can you tell me about any interesting use cases that you're actually running in the field with partners that, you know, maybe give our audience a sense of how this applies in the real world? So my favorite example is the wind turbines because... I'm fascinated by wind turbines and the size of them and the thought of how IT manages wind turbines. So we work with um, a company that's one of the biggest wind farm, farm operators in the country. And they find that, it, one, it's extremely expensive anytime they need to roll out a truck to fix a wind turbine, right? I mean, wind turbines are like 300 feet in the air. It's, it's a massive, sure, yeah. massive undertaking. And in the middle of nowhere. And in the middle of nowhere, absolutely. And all the mechanics for those wind turbines are up at the top right? They're not nicely at the bottom, they're up at the top. And so if something breaks or is banging around or something of that sort on the inside of those wind turbines, they generally don't know about it until the wind turbine breaks. Hmm. And at the point the wind turbine breaks, it is extremely expensive to go out there and fix it. So we have a customer and they're doing other use cases today, but the, but the use case they started with was pretty simple and brilliant. Where they they simply just wanted a microphone. A microphone. To I was going to say a camera, inside. but yeah, a microphone. Yeah. So so and for them it, it was because the noises, right? They they simply wanted a microphone that could be installed in, inside the top of each wind turbine, so they could catch noises that didn't sound quite right. Now are they catching those with humans or with machine learning? They're machine learning, okay. right? But suddenly there's like a ba- there's a banging, there's a clanking, yeah. there's something that isn't right. Yeah, and so now they can be a little, what it allows them to do is one, they can fix a problem before the wind turbine quits operating entirely and then they lose the, reven- the revenue from that not functioning. But they also now can be smarter about when they need to do maintenance across multiple ones. So I know that this wind turbine over here has a weird clanking. This wind turbine over here might be making another noise that's not quite right. I wouldn't have known about either one of those until they broke, but now I know that there's two. So next week I can send out, you know, John in the truck and he can go fix both of them at the same time. I saved myself, you know, it's, it, they told us it cost them about a hundred thousand dollars every time they have to send a truck out and a tech out. It's extremely expensive. Wow. That's a, that's a big number. So now they know that there's something wrong inside two wind turbines that are still functioning, but they're not quite up to snuff. I can send one person out. We can take care of both of them at once. We save that money. We've half the cost, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, and the wind turbine, they don't have it go fully down where they're not getting any revenue. Right, from so it. there's a predictive maintenance component to this. Well, it also seems like it'd be relatively straightforward, assuming they put um, uh, devices in the turbines that are, have sufficient excess capacity, but they could add additional sensors. They could put temperature sensors, vibration sensors. And they have done that. And that's exactly what they did is that once they, um, once that was installed, right, then it's just adding more sensors, deploying more applications, and now they can capture more people. How are these wind turbines connected back to anything? They are connected locally on the farm to a, so, so for this instance, they're not, they're not using the cloud. They've got sort of local wiring that goes and connects them to uh, you could call it like a small, a very small remote data center that's actually located on the wind farm. Is it like? Cat six or is it fiber? I 
don't know that it's fiber. Is it wireless? It's but it's wired. It's wired. Yeah, yeah. It's wired. Okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, you, you you talk to the folks in like the private LTE, private five G, and you know, there's a lot of proposals that that could also make it easier. Because you know, imagine it's not too easy to run cable, you know, outside in the dirt. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In in wind farms. Yeah, that sounds like a huge pain in the butt. It's, and that's why I think I think the wind farm example is so interesting because to me that is something that they're out in the weather. It's the, the the blades on those things are gigantic. So you think about the force of those moving around, how you know secure you have to make the device when you install it. Like it's there's a lot of elements to it, and we we were able to send a couple members of our team out to join some of the on-site techs to see the installation process. And they had to go up in the bucket and they had to climb a ladder to the top and they had to climb a ladder down. I mean, it was it was a huge process, lots of security stuff. Do you have a sense of like how much money this company's projecting it will save them over some period of time just to kind of scale? Because I mean, 100,000 to 50,000 is is a big number but but is it you know do they fix one turbine every six months or is it is it like one goes down a day no it's not it's i I don't have the numbers on that and i wish that i did okay but it's a lot of money it is is a lot of it is a lot of money for them and it's enough for them that they started with a handful of turbines they now are on a path to continue and they've they're in the process of expanding um on a regular they have a regular schedule as they're expanding to more turbines And as I said, they've gone back to the, the initial turbines. They've added more sensors. They've added more use cases. And those are being expanded as well. Well, and the smart turbine manufacturer will recognize that for like, you know, one one thousandth of the price of a wind turbine, they could add a, a uh, Project Eve box and a bunch of sensors. Yep. And then, yep. yeah, that's really, that's really, really super interesting. Yeah. And it's a great, it's a great example too of, of OT and IT working together, right? That IT has the expertise on how to make these do this installation and have it be secure and, and deal with all the networking and stuff. But OTZ experts on how these wind turbines have to run and, and what they need to be doing to be efficient. Now, what are some of the pitfalls that you're seeing in people doing uh, edge deployments and what advice would you have to people that are coming at this fresh? So in terms of pitfalls, one, and, and this, I guess, doesn't apply to people that are coming out. I'll make us it still applies to people that are coming out fresh. I think a lot of people that went in early with installations installed point solutions that solve for a specific use case, right? And that's, that's great. But then they add another use case, they add another solution. And now I've got two places I have to go in and manage. Um, I saw a stat from Gartner a while ago that said something like 85% of installations, this was what they had done was installed point solutions that were incompatible with each other. So that doesn't scale, right? Just from a people perspective, that's not scalable. So I think that's one of the pitfalls is, you know, really take a good look at what you're trying to do and not building for scale through automation and connectivity and those, those other kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. One, one look for something that's broad enough that it can accommodate multiple, you know, you're doing a solution that can accommodate across your use cases today, but also your use cases tomorrow. Right, so that you're not you're not falling into that siloed model. Making sure you're thinking about it for scale. There's a lot of projects that are out there that are running in labs, that are running in small deployments. That organizations then are stuck trying to figure out how do I how do I get this across a thousand wind turbines, or how do I get this across you know forty factories when each of these factories are you know acres and acres in size. So so really thinking about the scale part of it that making sure that what you're doing that's working in the lab, if it's heavily manual, that's not going to scale. So what can you put in place to help you 
you know, make that, make that easier for you to, for you to manage. And then the other piece of, I think it's just a security perspective because it's a new way of thinking about it. The edge doesn't have a perimeter, Mm, right? So what can you do to make sure that you're using solutions that are as secure as possible? How are you making sure that the device is secure? Um, we take we use the TPM chips on devices so that you can guarantee that the device you're talking to is the actual device. So for for those of our listeners that don't know what TPM is, can you tell us a little bit about that? So TPM is Trusted Platform Module, and it's something that you actually can get in the, the chips of a lot of devices that are coming out now. So it's an added way of being sure that the device you're working with is actually the device you think it is. That's like, right. you know, the iPhones that were stolen can't be used by somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And so and so that's registered. Zadita registers that when the device calls in. It's a hardware identification that you can't defeat easily. Yep, yeah. So you know exactly, exactly what it is. And then there's other things like, you know, these devices get installed, get installed and they have the default administrator login and, and password. And a lot of times that doesn't get changed. You know, we take that off the box. There's no logging into that box. If you go directly to it, you can only access it through the cloud, right? There's no way that if somebody, even if they get physical access to that box, that they can do anything to it. They can't go to the box, log in and suddenly activate a port, right? All the ports are turned on and off remotely. So even if somebody physically got access to the box and they plug something into a USB a USB port that's on the box, it's not going to do anything because it's been deactivated at the controller level. Got it. So that's the other piece of it is that just thinking about security differently because it's not it's not the data center, right? These are very extreme locations. Yeah. You don't have cages and exactly you know, cameras and security. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you mentioned that you've been in this edge world for two years approximately. And I'm interested because I think I came into this kind of fresh maybe three years ago. So not that much uh, longer than you. And a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. It was a very different world two years ago. What to you has been the most meaningful change that you've seen? I will tell you the thing I've enjoyed seeing the most. Okay. That's a great. Is I have enjoyed seeing things actually come to fruition for our customers. That two years ago, we were talking a lot about what was possible. Yeah, hand waving is early, any early stage marketer knows how to do well, <laughs> right? Like, like we were talking a lot about what was possible. There was a vision, you know, we could do some stuff, but but we weren't fully. I don't think anybody yet had a real vision of how much this is going to make. I mean, there's so many possibilities right now. So when you look at like COVID and how much that's changed things, and now that companies are looking at relying on edge computing, not just because they need to manufacture more PPE and they need, so they have to, you know, edge is is something they can do to drastically increase efficiency. But how can I monitor workspaces now to make sure that people are not too close to each other and there's not too many people in a space? And, you know, if I'm a, somebody who's in the culinary world, how can I use edge to create a touch-free kitchen or a kitchen that is as touch-free as possible, right? So I think, I think over the last couple of years, it went from being a lot of talking to really seeing things coming to fruition. And I know we're only on the cusp of that and it's only, it's only going to increase. But to be able to see like with our wind farm customers, something as simple as a microphone and what a difference that could make to their business. And then all of the use cases that I can't even think of yet that I know that in a year we could talk about and be like, wow, this is so cool. This company now is doing it to do this, right? I think for me, seeing it start to actually come 
to see customers using it, taking advantage of it, seeing that it's not just talk, that it's bringing a real value to these businesses, to me is super exciting. Yeah. Well, and a related question looking forward. So if you look at all the things that need to happen in order for this to become commonplace, let's say, and I'll define that vaguely because you'll see where I'm going with this. Um, but we kind of have a sense what that is, where most, you know, it's crossed that early, from early adopters into the majority, where common, your typical enterprises that maybe aren't super innovative are recognizing that there are proven toolkits that they can do to improve their business. And there's good payback on it because, you know, other people have taken the arrows in the back. What do you see from where we are today, the big dominoes that need to topple? Like if you go out and, and nudge a couple of the dominoes that need to topple, like which ones would you push on to make all of this accelerate? Oh, that is such a great question. I think I'd help people solve the scale problem because I think it's straightforward for people to see the value in their lab. But I think what is holding people back, and, and there's some good data I've seen on this too in terms of the percentage of projects that never get out of the, get out of the lab, right? Is that real world how do we make it real world pe for people? So your, your hypothesis is one of the big things that's preventing kind of one-off projects from getting out of the lab is that it's too difficult to scale? Yeah, you can't. I, I think it's, Interesting. it's great for six devices. It's great for a dozen devices. How, you know, edge computing is something that's vastly distributed. How do I manage, how do I manage this workload that I'm running that's giving me business value across you know, 2000 wellheads. Right. So outside of the awesomeness of Zadita that helps people scale, what other things need to be in place to, to help scale? One, I think this gets back to the open foundation because I think you have to have the flexibility to allow you to go with any type of hardware. I think you, because, because of cost. Yeah. So lots of people shipping devices that have Eve built in with an open API and the standard security and some standard sensors and yeah. Well, and the idea being that is, is devices, if you think about it, that I've gone out and I've installed 500 devices today of a certain type, right? And I know that in six months, those devices might be cheaper because that tends to be how, how hardware goes, right? Or another device comes along that's cheaper, but because I chose device number one, I'm now locked into that and I can't afford that anymore. My budget goes away. I don't have the flexibility to go with a cheaper option, right? So I think also going back to that open foundation that gives, gives people the ability to accomplish their workloads they need to run, but to do it in a flexible manner so that they can make the best choices for their business according to what their budget is, according to their needs, all of that at once. I think that that's a big, I think building that flexibility in is really important. You know, I can buy a really cheap Android phone or I can buy a really expensive Android phone. I get a lot of the same benefits either way. I have that choice, right? And I think that's important. You know, I've always thought about the power of open source to be, you know, the platform upon which we all build our differentiation. And it's like all the stupid stuff that we don't want to differentiate, that we can't differentiate around the commodity stuff, the heavy lifting that nobody actually gets any benefit from just doing themselves. And they certainly get time to market and cost benefits by, by sharing the, the work. But there's another benefit that you just described, and that is in terms of getting the monetary flows, in terms of getting the the investments required because you have to buy equipment you have to build servers and put cable in the ground and deploy radios and deploy you know edge devices and all these things and so by having an open standard that we can operate around 
you've got lots of device manufacturers where they suddenly say, well, this is great. By adopting this open standard, let's just say Eve in this case, I now can market to anybody that works with Eve, not just people that I've been able to sell myself uh, on, my, on an entire end-to-end -end system. So now, suddenly I have this big market that's open to me that wouldn't have been open to me with a proprietary solution that encourages more manufacturers to invest in that, which means lots of, lots of choices for customers, which makes customers feel better about making a purchase decision and allows them to customize the purchase decision. But also on the other side, it encourages lots of companies that are adding value that make the entire system more value. And so you get lots of software developers like Zadita and other companies that build complementary products as Zadita and probably some Zadita competitors. Um, but it creates this, this richness that a mature market really needs. And I'd never really thought about the economic flows outside of the just save me money and building something that I can build my business on. But the, the fact that it accelerates investment is really a really good point. I think that's I think that's true, and I think it also then you have all this goodness that's created, and that the manufacturers now are buying into the open source theory, and the software developers are contributing to it, and that then also creates this really rich community that the customers can rely on in terms of of dealing with problems and figuring out better ways of doing things. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, Sarah, thank you very much for joining us and sharing us with us your wisdom. And uh, how can people find you online? You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So we are at Zadita.com. Okay. And what if they want to reach out to you personally? Is there some Twitter feed or something that they can, people can connect to you? Yes. And my Twitter feed, my, my handle is, is completely nonsensical. Um, but they can find me at Tobertoed, which is T-O-E-B-E-R-T-O-E-D, I believe. They can search. They can search for my name on Twitter. They'll find and it. I, and I'm going to let them ask you <laughs> the derivation of that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good story, but it's for another podcast. Okay, another time, another time. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven: Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Packet, an Equinix company, makes infrastructure a competitive advantage for the leading companies of the world with globally available, developer-friendly bare metal and a neutral, interconnected ecosystem of networks, software, and solution partners. Packet is on a mission to protect, connect, empower the digital world with infrastructure that moves at software speed. Learn more and view open job listings at packet.com.